Welcome to Dad's Talking Dollars, the podcast all about helping all the dads out there make better decisions with their finances and take some stress out of your lives. We'll help you get on top of your loans, mortgages, interest rates, kids' education, and much more. And whether it's a holiday with the family, a new car, a trip with the lads, whatever you want to do, we're here to help you achieve it. This is how we should start every show. Spill it on the We're podcast equipment. The irony. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Welcome to Dad's Talking Dollars. Hope everyone's well out there in the cosmos, wherever you're listening from. DB, how you doing, Chief? Fantastic. Thanks, Nick. As always. As always. Good to hear. Dan, today's guest is Mr. Adam Tripaz. Uh, he's a well-studied strength and conditioning coach. His job has taken him to some pretty amazing places spanning across many different sports. Yes. Done our research. One, and that's funny, uh, one article headline, which which kind of made me giggle on, when I saw it on my socials in 2022 from Stab, was like reading, here's some advice from the no bullshit trainer who gets paid to yell at CT surfers. And and I thought, that this dude, oh, I can't wait to chat to this guy. And hopefully we may even get yelled at as well. First time. First time for everything. Well, there's only one I really yell at. <laughs> but you can yell at us, mate. Adam Tripez, how you doing, bro? Pretty good, thanks. Thanks for having me on here. A little bit humbled, but let's see how we go. That's all right. That's all right. Let's, let's start from the beginning, mate. Um, again, looking forward to, to hearing your story. And as every episode you know, involves a dad joke... Who wants to lead in with this one? I'll go. Dan's up first. How do you find Will Smith in the snow? I don't know. Follow the Fresh Prince. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> Terrible. Oh, God. Help us all. Time you, you can go, dude. Time for a Have a drink after that one. We'll pretend you never said it. Next up, ads. What do sprinters have for breakfast? What do sprinters have for breakfast? What do they have for brekkie? They don't. They're fast. <laughs> Fantastic. No wonder our social oh media comments are like, when's this going to get funny? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just waiting. They're waiting. Maybe season two will get funnier. Just have to subscribe now and find out later. <laughs> well, mine is, is, it's even worse. My wife is really mad at the fact that I have no sense of direction. So I packed up my stuff and write. <laughs> Very professional here. Dad jokes aside, Adam Tripaz, um, let's chat about your childhood as a kid. Um, you're a you're a very well educated man in, in what you do. I just want to know, as a kid, uh, were you into sports, and uh, if so, which ones? Um, I think as a kid, I grew up in sort of inner city Newcastle around Waratah, very very working class back then. Waratah in the Mayfield area because the um, BHP Steelworks was still there. I think my father was involved in that as an engineer. But my family come from a... Um, I don't want to take it back too far, but my father immigrated here from Greece when he was eight or nine and they ended up settling in Mayfield and they were known as a bit of a sporting family. My father represented Australia as a weightlifter, missed out on the 72 Olympics. He got injured just before he was supposed to go. And then my uncle... He, a little bit out of the norm for the sort of Greek culture and tradition in Australia in that times, he, they all played rugby league and he ended up playing for New South Wales in the 1970s and ended up playing for Canterbury. So they were sort of a little bit out of that culture. So I was brought up in a big sort of rugby league sporting family. So I grew up on the, all the fields at Waratah nearly every afternoon. 
And then um, as I got around to that 11, 10, 11, 12 years old, really we spent a lot of time at the beach and like surfing became my sort of passion. That's what I lived and breathed and all, all I really thought about and that ended up when I was, I think when I was 12 or 13, I was allowed to go to the beach on my own, which was huge. So I used to catch the bus or the train in and spend every weekend there at Newcastle Beach and sort of that was my home away from home and they all looked after me there and it's still a place that I absolutely love and, you know, it's just, my boys hate hearing about it because it's sort of like our sort of spiritual home and any yeah. surfer knows that. Yeah, yeah. And that's and um, as I got a little bit older, I think I wasn't um, wasn't the biggest kid. I, I was a very late developer, and I ended up just from being around the gym and that all my life with my dad. I ended up just uh, started um, wanted to weightlift, Olympic weightlifting. Took that on when I was about sixteen, and you know didn't go to the heights I wanted to go with that, but it sort of set me up for what I do now and what I've done for the last. Oh, since 1998, is um, work in sport as a strength and conditioning coach. And, yeah, that's what's taken me to today. Crazy journey already so far, <laughs> you know, going from those transitions from, you know, I guess you're having that family influence of already coming from the weightlifting backgrounds and then you found surfing. I mean, a lot of people in Newcastle do surf. It's a great place for it. Is there and many then, surfers that weightlift? That's a good question. This guy does. I don't think so. No. I always thought that. I always used to say that I'm a full-time surfer, part-time weightlifter. <laughs> he throws buckets, so we've seen it. <laughs> we've seen it. Maybe do you think those all those uh, that powerlifting has an effect on your bottom hand turns, would you say? Maybe, and it also has effect of my lack of paddling fitness as well. <laughs> <laughs> so how did your folks feel about you sort of getting sort of sucked into the surfing world were they kind of like adam you don't want to go on down that path that's for that's for that's people with no jobs and have beards and long hair i sort of reflect on that now and think about it with my wife where my wife kate she was a, a pretty high level gymnast and we're both at you know love the beach and she got brought up in a surfing family as well but i, I think if i look back at it now i'd which was no fault of their own i don't think my parents looked at it as a sport because I can remember mm. that, you know, you're seeing a lot of the kids, the parents that did look at it, the sport in winter, they had wetsuits, they had that, and here's me. I remember I got picked for an elite cadet camp. I wasn't that good. I think I was the only one that, you know, I'd take off on waves that other kids wouldn't. I went to an elite cadet camp in Narrabeen when I was 13 or 14, and um, it was in the middle of winter, and I was the only one there that was surfing in board shorts. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone else had fancy wetsuits and in there, but I don't think my parents actually seen that, like looked at it as a sport, which mm. I think that was just that um, era. Mm. And, and I don't think they looked at what I'd done in terms of the lifting and going down that sort of sports science path. They looked at that as a pathway because... You know, when I, when I left school in year 12, they were like, you know, you've got to do an apprenticeship or something like that and, you know, connections with your older brother, Matt. Mm. I started an electrical apprenticeship and it was in a shed in the middle of nowhere and I remember turning up on the first day thinking in my head and I still, the way my sort of um, touch of autism works is that I can remember it straight away driving home from work on the first day going, I can't do this for the rest of my life. Yeah. I cannot do this for the rest of my life. I cannot turn up, wait for a hooter, work in a shed, wait for a hooter and go home. Especially with people like my brother as well. He actually made it a little bit better, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, and I think when I sort of said I can't do this and hmm. enrolled in uni, that I don't think my parents seen what I was doing as a um, as an actual pathway. Hmm. 
which was, as I said again, is no fault of their own, I think, because they got brought up in that blue-collar working class that, you know, you have a job, you'd be happy to have a job, you work, no one likes their work. But, you know, but you I have look to at do now, it anyway. Yeah, but I absolutely love my job and I don't mm. care what day it is. So, yeah, I'm very, very lucky with that. That's probably an interesting element we haven't explored yet, which is how many people went into their first job and stayed in it or the first university or TAFE course. Not many do the same thing for everyone a day anymore. Whereas in the day they did. Yeah. Like, you do your work and then you have fun. Mm. So true. Very generational. And I think now that That's people have got all these new opportunities to endeavour into things of more of a what they want to do, not so much what they feel they have to do, mm. which is pretty cool. It's a lot harder back then. Definitely. Pretty lucky. Getting paid to be sick these days. <laughs> Get a jab in the arm and take your time off and... <laughs> Play video games. <laughs> the weightlifting um, phase came into your into your life. Um, how did you get into strength and conditioning and sports science exactly? So it's because because people say, "Oh, you're a trainer," but trainers can mean anything. And I know, I'm guessing people like yourself hate probably hate that term trainer because trainers can do TAFE courses and become trainers, right? So tell us more about that. Um, it's one that I'm, I'm probably very known for about my opinion on all of this and my uh, surfers all wind me up about this all the time, especially my Italian surfer. He knows who he is. I, I started weightlifting and really loved it. And um, Back then, and I always say now, with a couple of certification courses that I lecture in for the Australian Strength and Conditioning, when I talk to personal trainers that come in to do their level one strength and conditioning is that you know, back in that late 90s, early 2000s, the whole CrossFit thing wasn't here. So weightlifting was basically, Olympic lifting was basically unheard of. So I was probably the only lifter in the area. So it was a really different, and I absolutely loved it. Was sort of self-coached here and would go to Sydney and get some coaching as well. But I wanted to know everything I could because I wanted to be the best at it. Even though I never was, I always strive for that. So I can remember you know, buying translated Russian training journals from the internet to read what they were doing and just wanted to know everything I could about strength and power development, how I could be the best weightlifter. And it sort of took a turn. I trained at a local gym that happened back in that day that the Knights used to train there. It was a commercial gym, but they had a pretty good area set up out the back for athletes to train. And their head coach at the time, Warren Ryan, was watching me train one afternoon and he sort of said, you know, what's your name, blah, blah, blah. And he, he knew my dad because... Little, little did I know, but Warren Ryan back then, a bit of a guru of NRL, he went to the Commonwealth Games for shot put, so he knew who my father was. Ah. And he hit me up and he said, well, someone like you needs to be working here. Wow. So he sort of asked me, uh, ended up talking to people, and they took me on as doing some stuff with their juniors, and it just sort of snowballed from there. Just like that, that's how you en enter the phase it. of the nights. Um term that you took on yes isn't that crazy early 2000s there wouldn't be much training going on in first grade was it yeah it was uh, um <laughs> yeah it's probably one that i wouldn't comment on about too much but no it was good like one of you know they had some very very good people that were working there that were my mentors that ended up you know me you know one of the guys there ashley jones who went on to do he was the head of performance there at that stage and he went on to the All Blacks when they had their big run and he was one of the ones that sort of connected me when I went to Japan and yeah it's, it's a very I think world sport's very big but in terms of it, there's probably one degree of separation where I can email or text someone I know and I could probably get the number or details off anyone working in any organisation across the world in my role mm. so it's, it's, it's a very big sport but what I do in terms of that sports science S&C that high-end stuff, it's very small. Yep. Right, so tell us more about... So you had... How long did you have with the Knights and what was your experience like? 
Um, I was at the Knights from 98 to 2004, seven years. It was interesting. I, I think it um, it made me sort of re, re-enrol or take uni back on and I ended up doing a my degree during that time in um, PE teaching. I would have done probably sports science here, but they didn't offer it at Newcastle Uni at that time. That wasn't um, quite a subject back then still. It was, but not at many universities. Right. Yeah, exercise and sports science or human movement. I think Wollongong was one of the only universities that were really doing it in Australia. So, yeah, I'd done my degree in PE teaching and now I look back now and when I talk to or people that I mentor, it's probably the best thing I've ever done because it taught me what I'm doing now, how to talk, how to teach. Mm. And, you know, we always say that if you can teach, you know, 30 or 40-year peers, you can teach anyone, especially at university. And it was probably the best four years I've ever had. I was very introverted before I went to uni and kept to myself. But going there and spending time for four years with 60 people from everywhere, girls and boys, we, that was the best four years of my life. Can't imagine you as an introvert, though. That's the thing. You, you know, obviously don't show those characteristics now, so it's good to know. Brought you out of your cage. So was, was Japan the next step post-Nights? What happened uh, directly after that? Post-Nights, I was offered a position in the UK Super League which was, you know, at that time it was with Wakefield Wildcats in, in northern England. That would have been a shocker huh, to then have to migrate to the other side of the world. Massive shock for me. At, I think I'd just turned 26 or 27, so I was pretty young and pretty young um, probably maturity-wise as well. And I'm thinking, I'm going over there, you know, this is my shot, I'm the man, I'm this. And I got there and it was a whole different world. Like, you know, I turn up and I'm the only full-time staff member other than the physio and had a pretty tough coach and it's cold and it's freezing I remember I turned up there never been really over to that side of the world and I've turned up on my own and no one was there to pick me up from the airport so I didn't know who to they ordered the pub (laughs) didn't know and then the old groundsman come and pick me up who I could hardly understand and he had this and I was like what have I got myself into here yeah and as I said I thought I think my knowledge was ready for that sort of role but my sort of management and communication skills were. So I sort of only lasted a year there and was like, no, I can't do this. Mm. So I ended up biting the bullet and coming home. And I was home for about a year, I think, and then the opportunity arised in Japan. Wow. So one thing that's resonating for me is that that relationship capital, it's like you started off with the conversation with Warren Ryan and then that must be flowing through right through your career where it's one thing's led to another. And then all of a sudden, you know, a list of phone names in your phone, but really that's sort of probably served you all the way through the career from that one point forward. Definitely. Great point. Making that impact as a young guy has obviously, it's still resonating with you today. Yeah, Reputation is carried forward. Definitely. And, and it is, it's all about, you know, them sort of relationships. But what I've learnt now with dealing with a lot of individual athletes that are, you know, at the top of the top of their game, it's the relationships are more important than the actual sort of training side of things. The relationship you have with the athletes where they put a lot of trust in you and they, they end up, especially on the individual level, which I never knew because I'd only worked in teams before I started working with my surfers, that they're, they're basically like family. Mm. You know, they, they've watched my, a lot of my surfers have watched my, I think Ryan, Callanan now, we're going on 10 years together which is crazy when mm. I look at it. But, you know, he's like part of our family with my boys, with, you know, weddings and all of that. So it's a very – but it's still, too, we, we have a pretty good relationship with all of them that if I'm not doing my job, then I don't expect to be with them in the next year or the year after that. What about trust? How do you think that's 
it's easily said, but what do you think the characteristics or how do you, you gain someone's trust at that level, especially when they're their career is riding on you backing them and vice versa, I guess. It's a, it's a mutual beneficial relationship. Yeah, I think in – in and, and I had this conversation with um, an athlete I've taken on in the last six months. She's a young Hawaiian girl, Gabriella Bryan. She's, I think she's number eight in the world, loveliest girl you'll ever meet. Now, Gab's only 21 or 22. Um, that was the thing, like – Richard Marshall's coaching her and usually a lot of people that he coaches, he pushes them straight onto me and says, you know, I want you to work with him on that side of things. Because as much as surfing's taking off, to me from my background in, in pro sport for so long and my education, it's so far behind in terms of um, the sports science and um, the S&C stuff. It's not the be-all and end-all, but I think surfing's still got that little spiritual woo side of it where they look at a lot of the alternative-type um, training methods which really aren't proven and I think my squad's known for you know how well we how strong we are how powerful we are how well we prepare and I think to get that back to your question to get that trust like with Gabrielle it's like hey these things Gabriella I shouldn't say that she doesn't like if you say Gabrielle um, these things take a while it's not going to happen overnight I'm not going to tell you you train with me, you're going to be a world champion a year. This is something that, you know, you're going to feel better surfing. We're not going to – it's not going to be a black and white thing. But after a while, you'll go, hey, I'm doing stuff that I never used to do or, I, or I'm or i um, feeling a lot better when I wake up or I can surf for a little bit longer. So it's not – and I don't really come from it from a business angle because mm. I think if you come from a business angle, that clouds everything. I come that I'm passionate about it. And I think I'm lucky that, you know, I'm permanent in my role – with the Department of Education, so I'm not looking to make millions of dollars outside of it. I'm mm. just looking to share on my knowledge, and that's the fun stuff with the surfers. I think the thing that just stood out there is that you have to be genuine and that you know authentic and genuine, and the truth and trust come with it. So if you share the the truth, and then they're going to trust you in time, whether that's probably not on day one, but six months in, it's not because you've shown her the way, or you just you know you're there to support her on her journey. Versus, like you're saying, instead of being a product to sell or whatever it may be, it's a different type of relationship. Athletes are a lot of people look at athletes that, um, how can you say it, that they're not very intellectual, but mentoring and when I do a lot of certification courses that I present in, or even a couple of courses I've done at uni, is if you're bullcrapping to them, they can see through you straight away. They, they know straight away, hang on, this person's talking in technical jargon, they're telling me that this is wrong with me and this is wrong with me and I, I'm the only person they can fix you. So they make you, you know, some of the charlatans in the ind- industry make people rely on them. Mm. And that's why with my role with all my surfers is I'm sort of their first stop if they get injured. You know, if um, Ryan, they're over in South Africa now, hey, I've done this, this. Ankle's a bit sore. Okay, we've got to try and find someone that's a physio there that you need to go and see. Mm. Yes, the WSL do um, provide some medical, but that medical is very Cairo-y, breathing-y, woo. We want someone to fix the actual problem. Right. So, so that's that other sort of one that they see with the genuine type of things that you're there to look after them and not just... You know, they come in and it's a it's a good saying in all of what I do at the elite level is, you know, any fool can make another fool tired. But mm. if you know what you're doing, you can make someone better. Mm. And, and that's what we're always trying to do is to be better. Are we, are we faster? Are we jumping higher? Are we recovering quicker? Is our 
I don't know, is it our aerobic stuff? Are we recovering quicker from doing high-intensity work? Are we... Yeah, so there's a lot of things that come into it. It's not just about coming into the gym, here, give me a 100 bucks, I'm going to beat the crap out here for an hour. Oh, yeah. that was really hard, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, that was hard. That means nothing. Mm. You know, to me, they, they've got to be able to perform every day, not just once or twice a week, and then for the rest of it, you know, you can come in and beat someone up today, and they're stuffed for the next three days so they can't move or do anything. Yeah. I think what we do, what I do out of the water with my athletes, that's um, training, and what they do in the water or with their sports, that's practice. The training is just making you be able to practice for at a higher intensity for a much more longer period. It's not going to, you know, I'm not, you know, people, and I have had parents and that come to me, oh, I heard you're really specific with surfers. No, nah, I, I develop athletes. Mm. They're already good surfers without me. Do mm. I make that much of a difference? We don't really know. Mm. Hopefully I do, but... There, you know, guys like Ryan Callanan, Leo Fioravanti, um, Jacko Baker, and Ramsey are my four main guys. They're good surfers with or without me. Mm. You know, I think I'm adding that what, maybe one or two percent and making them feel like they're an athlete, creating structure in their life, that their preparation's good and everything like that. Today's episode is sponsored by Coastal Advice Group. They offer financial planning and specialise in helping people like you build a plan for the future. Head over to coastaladvicegroup.com.au and book yourself a free initial meeting. So just to describe where we are today, we're inside Adam's gym in the backyard. Um, his kids are inside. I think they're having a bit of a wrestle, so he's just popped off to you know tend to that. Dan, but how cool is this little space? They're uh, just uh, arguing who is right and who is wrong. Yeah, yeah there's a bit of royal but rumble going and right. on. <laughs> yeah, and maybe the foot, uh, occasional foot. Foot and the pillow over Dad's the just gone in and yeah. reprimanded them. He's come back out with a smile on his face. He's happy about the situation. Welcome to the new podcast. <laughs> Dad's talking wrestling. Dad disciplining sons. <laughs> That'd actually be a good one. Dad's disciplining sons. What tools do you use? I'm a belt guy myself. Oh, I've got a piece of bamboo up on the door frame. That's my, my dad was a bamboo king. I think, I think if you ask those athletes, they would say a different thing about having a coach and a mentor. And I think Dan could probably relate here as far as you know, advice, mentoring and coaching goes within the financial world. I mean, people may not think they need it, but until it's applied, they notice a, a significant difference. Yeah, I think the value of a coach is, you know, you can't put a percentage-based figure to it. Mm. Um, my coach who I work with, David, he's, you know, three years now, I think it's been, and the last three years has seen exponential growth. I've learned skills that I'll have for the rest of my life. I, could, I speak on stage now with absolute authority or confidence, and that's happened through that last three years. And so it's, it's incredibly important to have someone to help guide you to that success and you might have multiple people. I would imagine these surfers have you know, a whole different mm. range of people from their diet through to their, their fitness through to surfing technique, but all of that's trying to get that 1% or 2% better than their, their competitor. I still see, and it's a sort of one that my wife, she's probably the more outgoing one of, of us two, that in social sort of some social areas, I am still really introverted. Like if I go somewhere with her and you know her, all her nurse friends... I'll look for the closest corner that I can be in that I don't have to, you know, but then when, as you're talking about, but if I'm talking about what we're talking about now where I'm very passionate in and I love it, mm. I could talk all day about it. Mm. So just an interesting one that we went to an event not long ago, I think it was a engagement party and someone from a work 
come up to me and goes, oh, you need to come and meet my husband. He loves surfing. He loves training you and him and get along well. And while <laughs> I feel so bad saying it, while this girl's talking to me in my head, I'm going, right, I'm going to say I'm going to the toilet and then I'm going out to the car for 10 minutes to let this simmer down so I don't have to meet Because <laughs> it's the most awkward, that's the most awkward thing for me. And my wife knew exactly what was going on because she could just read it in my face. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, you know, if I'm talking about, you know, what we're talking about now, training and mm. athletes and stuff like that, no problem at all. And coming back to what you said, and I think what I look at myself with my athletes now is because I've done that role in some pretty huge sporting organisations is, you know, you're the head of performance where you're sort of overlooking dietitians, physiotherapists and getting you like a project manager on a site. Mm. But you have your passion, which mine is in the gym, and I'd always take a lead in that role. But I'd have, you know, my specialist that's in speed development, my specialist in rehab, we've got our physios and we all work together, but sort of I guide the philosophies of, of that. And I'm doing a lot now with there's a few girls that, um, my wife works with that I look after a lot of their training but I'm, it's that same thing I'm more like their project manager where they'd normally go to crossfitty type gyms and it's like they'd turn up every morning at 5am train boom go to work for the day but there'd be no structure to what they're doing mm-hmm. so now I've provided that structure and they absolutely love it that you know if they're working three or four night shifts I'll go well you're not training there's no use there's enough stress on your body anyway and they're actually, you know, they've come back and gone, geez, I feel better and, you know, my weight's dropped a bit and my fitness is and I'm stronger because I'm telling them when to train, when not to train. Okay, have a day off if you're stressed or, or you've got a big weekend. Yep, that's cool. Go away. Don't, don't even worry about training. So that, that's sort of that other way, the way with it. And I think that's the same as my athletes now where they're all in South Africa and it's like, okay, my text to him yesterday was, hey, can one of you let me know, are we looking like running on day one of the surf comp? Ryan, come back, don't think so. Okay, then we will do a session today, but I'll add a little bit more volume into it, but keep me up to date. And that's, you know, we're nearly talking every day. So how do you go about those, um, you know, international competitions, for example, like right now you're sitting, we're sitting in your shed where you normally train. The boys, are, the boys and girls are over there. So do you, how do you go about training overseas long distance? So obviously everything, I trust them. They know exactly what, what's expected. They know how we work during comp windows. We're a lot different to a lot of other sort of surfers where, where we train right through competition windows. You know, just the, the, the volumes, how much we do and how heavy we do is what changes. Mm. We just need to keep them sparked up and, you know, ready to go. But they'll, they'll, we're in touch every day we're on our group text and that. And there's an app that they use for training that's got videos and they know how to navigate it. And I can just load their programs today. I can see when they've done it, how long they've been so on the keep app an for. I can keep well. a big yeah. eye on them. So if they're listening, he's watching, guys. And Don't usually it's a holiday. And when they go into their app, there's for them to see their program, they first have to tell me, answer five wellness questions and tell me how they feel, how they sleep. Are they tired? Are they motivated to train? What were their surf hours the day before? So if I see that and get any alerts, I can change a little things up. For example, they're at J-Bay now, which if anyone knows surfing, it is a very, very long wave. They have no jet ski assist, so they've got to paddle. So we don't do much upper body in this period because they're getting enough of it from paddling. We more focus on other areas. J-Bay, obviously that's where Fanning got attacked by the shark. Um which is incredible, and you saw, you know, there's probably never been any other footage of a shark attack ever, full stop, let alone on a professional server. Um, 
interesting because you think about other sports where they'll you talk about tennis or rugby league or whatever it may be. They train up and they're very soft into the game week or whatever. They won't, you know, week to week they're just managing their workload. So it's interesting the surfers train right through their competition. Oh, that's the first thing that resonated with me. I was like, well, I've never heard of that before. I would have thought they, you know, the swimmers, they lay right off before they compete and so forth. And, and there's no wild animals trying to, trying to eat yeah. them. Hey, let's throw that in the mix. Hey, you want to kill? You want to train all your life, strict diets, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Go push yourself to limit. By the way, there's giant mammals that want to eat you. Yeah, actually, I got another dad joke, sort of. Oh, two Isaac in one apps. Are we allowed to do this? We're breaking rules here. Go for it. I think Jaws the movie got a little bit um, mis- mistaken or misunderstood because when you watch it in reverse, it's actually about a friendly shark giving people their limbs back. Anyway, so that's, let's go back to the training part. Mm-hmm. No, I think at the it, it's interesting. That's sort of really surprising for me that you know your average punter sort of says that. I know no different because you know there's people that I've mentored now that are that are running NRL clubs and that now in the training. But I think the the general punter doesn't know actually what goes on behind the scenes. A lot of them, you know, I know in the NRL, in Super Rugby, in World Rugby, they're all training pretty damn hard during periods of um, periods of competition but it's just how much they do mm. you've just got to still be there and that's where a lot of that as I said you know wellness questionnaires we have stuff that the guys do with heart rate they've got to take heart rate monitors around with them so I can sort of see because that tells me what's happening internally with their stress if they're overloaded so there's a lot that sort of goes onto it behind the scenes I think that I look at it because in my little bubble, all the people that I talk to know exactly what I'm talking about, so mm. I sort of think that everyone knows that. That's you know, everyone's got the same literacy as me in them areas, mm. and you know, it's like you, Nick. You talk to me to something about music and this and that, and I'll be going, "What the hell is he saying?" What's and, going on? But I'm even the same point. I have good networks that I talk to. You know, one of my main guys that's a absolute brilliant sports scientist in SNC, Josh Second. Always getting chased by ice hockey teams in the um, NHL in America. He's at Newcastle Uni, and he's my go-to. He probably changed the face of surfing with a lot of the research he done with his PhD to show that actually what you do on land can affect performance in the water. And he done that out of the um, Australian Surfing High Performance Centre. But Josh is a guy that I'll go to and go, "Hey, mate, you know this, 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 and this. What do you think of that?" Mm. And he'll talk to me in this really technical sports science jargon. And in my head, I'm going, I don't know what he's talking about. Should I know what he's talking about? Does he know that I don't know what he's talking about? <laughs> but I'm at a point with Josh now where I'll go, hey, mate, I don't understand what you're saying. Yeah. And go, oh, okay, mate. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So, Got you. Yeah. And I it's think all that's relatable. The, yes, very. It's all relatable. Say you're sitting down with two early 40-year-old <laughs> men uh, who may or may not have the best health uh, or fitness And drinking beer whilst talking to you. What do you think? Just the part there about the stress and so forth. I think I find that interesting because now I look back when I've actually done injuries, I can see that up to the lead up, I was probably under more mental stress at the time or pressure, and something gives way, so it's all connected. So, what do you think? Is there anything you could share when people are training or their nutrition or their their question around what they're how they're feeling, how they sleep? What are some of the key things that you could? pass on to the listeners yeah i think a guy that i go to with all that a guy called joel jemison in the um in the u.s he's worked in mma and that for like 20 years and he's sort of the guru in a lot of this sort of heart rate stuff and 
surfing being surfing, Joel, I contacted him, I think it was last year, and said, love all your stuff, this is what I'm doing. And he's like, oh, well, actually, for six months of the year, I live in Hawaii on the North Shore. And I was like, oh, well, I go over there every year. Mm. So it was just that connection straight away. He's a guy that I wouldn't think that would have anything to do with it. So I've spent a lot of time talking with him. So what he's come out with some really, really good research is that um, stress is stress no matter where it comes from. So, you know, you could be stressed from work. If you either go, oh, I've got to go and train, it's a good stress release or something like that, you could be adding to your stress. Your body knows no different. It's stress and stress. And a really good graph that Joel came out with where he had the difference between someone that's inactive, moderately active or very active. The people that are moderately active and very active only have the same amount of energy they can use. So if you are super, super active, and I look at that, the people that do CrossFit-y circuit-type training every day, they've only got a certain amount of energy that their body can use. If, they, if they're using that energy that they need and they need more, they'll grab it for it. Their, their body goes down to the cellular level with mitochondria and stuff like that, but their body will grab the energy from somewhere else where that energy could have been going to their brain. So that's uh-huh. where that brain frog comes in. That energy could have been going to their recovery system, making them you know, stronger or better for the next day and taking it from there. And so that's where people wow. go downhill. It's very, very, very interesting, interesting when you get into it because mm. we only had a certain amount of reserve. It's not, it's not an innate mm. thing that, you know, there's energy is just going to be there. Your body will grab it from where it needs to grab it to make you try and bring you back to homeostasis. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe to our channel. You can also find us on Instagram where you can leave a comment on what you'd like to hear next time on Dad's Talking Dollars. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we work and live, the Awabakal and Warami peoples, and pay our respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Mm.